Hey, 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 welcome back for another episode with the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. We are so glad that you guys are still here. We got through Christmas, guys. I hope y'all loved it. I hope you got everything you wanted from Santa. I heard that uh, Cody got nothing but a lump of coal and a bunch of consults. So hey, hey, yeah, you know, you know, it wasn't um, it wasn't too bad. You know, it's just uh, another day in the life of the uh, ortho resident. You know, another day in the life. That's how you got to look at it. You never know, man. Sometimes around the holidays, you would think like people just kind of right. hanging out with their family, <laughs> chilling. Hey. But, Maybe that makes it worse. Maybe they're around their family and then they, they get into altercations. You know, I something, don't know. man. Like I, I think you know, maybe you're angry because you're not with family and you go shooting people. I don't know, but they just do <laughs> weird things, man. They do weird things. But I enjoy my holiday. And guys, man, it's it's, it's time again. You know, um, Happy New Year's is coming up, guys. So I uh, hope you guys stepping into 2021. In good spirits, I'm, we all expect in 2021 to be better than 2020. It was, it was crazy. Ever since, yeah. ever since Kobe died, I, I just think 2020 been trash. Yeah, it's, it's just been. all downhill. So hopefully, yeah. you know, you start. All right. So, uh, yet again, here we go. Another episode. Uh, tell them about it, Doctor Cole. Yeah. So this one we have Doctor Clayton Nully, and he talks to us about cartilage restoration. So we talk about. Macy's, we talk about um, autographs and implants. We also talk about uh, microfractures. So this is, you know, more sportsy topic, but it's a it's a very good topic. And he did a good job and kind of explaining everything. And again, if you are listening to this, that's great. And you're driving. But if you're at home sitting down or getting ready to cook some stuff, you can go ahead and pull up the YouTube page and watch the visuals along with it. Uh, but it, he just did a great job, you know, a little bit more about uh, Dr. Nully. He did his residency at the University of Missouri, uh, and he actually, what we're reading, he sounds like he, he did a great job over there. He got many awards. He got the Alan Menard Leadership Award. He got a uh, Barry Gaynor Resident Award in Education. So he sounds like he, he did a really good uh, good job. He also got an Outstanding Orthopedic Resident Award, and he did his fellowship in sports medicine at the University of Missouri. So without further ado, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode on cartilage and everything about kind of cartilage restoration. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Nelly, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We are happy to have you on. So welcome. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me. No, no, again, thank you for being a guest. And um, I'm excited about today's topic, uh, a little bit of cartilage restoration. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about some some type of OCD lesions. Um, but before we get into all that, we kind of generally start with a couple of questions, just getting to know you as a person. And so the first question I have for you is what what brought you into the field of sports or what made you choose that as far as your your specialty? Yeah, sure. So I think um, similar to a lot of folks that go into sports, uh, I, I played a lot of sports growing up and, and was an athlete uh, growing up and had some different injuries and things like that. And so that, that drew me to orthopedics at first in general. And then and then once I kind of got more involved in, in sports and got able to be involved in kind of coverage with team stuff and, and being involved in different types of sports teams and those sort of things, uh, that drew me directly to it uh, pretty quickly. And so... I was always interested in ortho and always interested in, in sports in particular and a number of different uh, type of procedures that we're able to do arthroscopically and minimally invasively um, uh, via 
yeah, that route uh, definitely drew me to it. And so, uh, and so it's definitely a field that's enjoyable and it's, it's kind of ever changing and, and always new technology coming out. So it, it kind of always stay on the learning uh, curve, so to speak. And so those types of things are really appealing to me. Nice. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely a lot. It, it seems like there's always a lot going on in research with, when it comes to some of the sports uh, topics and, you know, just kind of new and updated techniques that's always coming about. So I can definitely understand that. Uh, since we're, we're talking about that, the next question is actually, what, what would you say is your favorite case and, uh, and why? Yeah, so, I mean, I think uh, any sports guy wouldn't be a sports guy if they didn't say that they like doing ACL reconstructions. That's kind of almost the bread and butter for any sports person. And you mentioned research, and the ACL is the most researched ligament in the entire body. So so we all have to love ACLs, of course. But, uh, but the topic we're talking about tonight is definitely my favorite. It's a bread and butter for me. And uh, any type of cartilage restoration procedure I really enjoy doing, particularly uh, osteochondroallograph transplants and matrix-associated chondrocyte implants. And so um, cartilage restoration is something that I really love and I, I think it's really enjoyable and a lot of changes going on and a lot of research as you alluded to and mentioned. And so I think it's a really interesting kind of subfield within the field of sports medicine and arthroscopy. Yeah, I think that's pretty cool. I actually, um, actually got my ACL reconstructed when I, was, when I was a little bit younger. So I do enjoy a, a good ACL case. Um, so moving on to the next question, is so what made you because you know we sometimes we have a lot of residents that listen in on our podcast some chiefs that may be going you know about their own general field and they're trying to figure out what kind of practice they want to go into so what made you choose I guess your type of practice or what kind of drew, drew you towards that like what, what, what was your uh, decision making yeah that's a great question that's a that's a big question certainly and and you could get very 10,000 picture and, and say that uh, I wanted to practice where I could do some sports medicine and cover some teams and, and hopefully have a wide range of, of things that I cover um, where you get very, very specific in terms of the bread and butter or the, or the specifics of the practice itself in terms of, I'm personally in a private practice, but then I also have an affiliation with the academic university and, and we have fellows and that work with us and occasionally uh, other residents from one of the local residencies here in town and medical students too. So almost kind of like a private-demic, people like to call it sometimes. And so I enjoy that a lot because I, I get uh, some of the benefits of some of the autonomy um, of a private practice and working, working in a surgery center in a private practice. But then I also get the benefits that I enjoy too of, of teaching and, and working with um, uh, residents and fellows and medical students and then research uh, and the research aspect of it and being involved in that uh, as well. And so, so I think for me, uh, it was a, being able to have a, a nice combination of of autonomy and the type of practice setup that I wanted and the type of um, environment that I wanted, but then also still being able to be involved with fellows and residents and medical students and involved in research and, and societies and those types of things as well. And so I definitely would say uh, find, you know, the setup that fits your personality the most and, and, and the type of group or the type of location or the type of hospital that you think really you would enjoy working at first and foremost. And, and then, uh, you know, other things play a role too in terms of location and family and things like that, obviously as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, that's one of probably the, the earlier things that you kind of have to decide is, you know, do you want to go into more of a private type of practice versus academic and, you know, all those things that you mentioned about, you know, enjoying being able to teach and being involved in research are some of the things that probably helped the most. Um, 
But, you know, we're going to go ahead and get into the talk today. And, and this today's talk is kind of, um, it's actually a, a big topic. And uh, that's kind of how we want it to be. We're going to talk about OCD lesions, but we have a, a bit of a case to just to have everybody on the right mind track of, you know, how these people sometimes present. And this particular person will be an athlete, but it's not always an athlete. But uh, we have a 18-year-old football player who comes in with a, four-month history of generalized knee pain uh, say that it first started about four months ago and seemed like it got better for a little while but it still bothers him with practice and when he's playing the game certain movements seem to really give him a lot of aching pain right at his knee um, and let's see. yeah so pretty much where would we start with something like that as far as history and physical and trying to work up someone to evaluate whether or not this may possibly be an OCD lesion. Yeah, so you touched on some of them, the, the duration. Um, some of the big things that are important are, is it activity related or is it all the time? Um, so, you know, does it only happen when he runs or does, is, is the pain starting to occur every single day, every time he takes a step or every time he walks? Um, has he ever had issues with this before? You know, did, did he have issues with this when he was younger? Or did it just start within these last few months? And, you know, has it come on and has it worsened over that time? Um, are important types of history, does he have any type of family history of any sort of congenital issues or any sort of um, uh, any family history of any other type of um, arthritic issues or, or cartilage type of issues in the, within the family themselves. And, and then certainly from the physical exam standpoint, um, big things are joint effusions, um, especially at that age. Any, anytime an adolescent, you, you want to know if they have a joint effusion because if they're having recurrent joint effusions, then something's happening intraarticularly and something, something's going on that should tip you off. Um, if they're having recurrent joint effusions and, and then, and then from the specific, uh, physical exam standpoint itself, you know, where's the pain, um, where's it located? When does he, when does he get it? Um, does he have any evidence of any sort of catching or locking or crepitus, um, within the joint with range of motion? And then, you know, is there any sort of tenderness to palpation? And, and, uh, it depends on the joint that you're talking about. This is a football player you said in the knee, correct? Yes, sir. Yeah. So, so, you know, a lot of times they'll have pain to tenderness to palpation, uh, you know, over one condyle or another with deep flexion, um, especially if the, if it is an OCD and if it is located on one of the condyles, which is what's most common um, in this age group or that age group for, for an OCD. Um, so you'll, you'll do your kind of typical range of motion and ligamentous exam, but sometimes when you put them into deep flexion and you palpate one condyle or another, they'll be focally point tender um, over, over a certain condyle, and that'll kind of clue you in that they may have a localized defect or a localized lesion uh, on one condyle or another. And, you know, so this particular case, we made this about a, a you know, a, an athlete coming in with knee pain, but what's some of the other, you know, areas of the body that you have to kind of consider, you know, possible OCD lesions? And I guess how would they might, how would they present as well? Yeah, great question. So, you know, the knee is one of the most common, certainly, and then followed by the elbow and then the ankle is another, another common one. Uh, you can get OCDs in most, most joints, but then certainly the knee, elbow, and ankle are the three most common. Uh, knee being most common that you see just in general, but then, you know, specifically they'll present often like you presented in an athlete, like a football player or a runner of some sort. Elbow can present in a variety of ways as well, but most frequently you'll see it in a gymnast um, because obviously they're doing handstands and things like that, and so they'll become symptomatic. Um, and then an ankle could, can present in anyone certainly as well, but often we see those in, in running type of athletes or frequently often in ballet. 
um, dancers um, and then sometimes soccer players and things like that. But especially ballet, you may want to kind of be tipped off to a, to a talus OCD lesion uh, in the ankle. And so those are, those are the three big joints or most common joints that you're going to see in OCD, particularly in an adolescent or even someone in their potentially uh, 20s and 30s. Um, and for the knee, it's, you know, it's, it's most common that it'll occur with weight bearing or with running that the pain will occur, or at least that's how it initiates. Um, with the elbow, if, it's same thing if they get kind of weight bearing, like they're doing handstands at a gymnast or, um, or they get, um, uh, uh, it can sometimes occur in a thrower as well. Um, if they, if you have a pitcher that, um, puts a lot of stress with a, a lot of valgus stress on the elbow, um, and a lot of stress on the capitellum in particular. Um, which is where you most frequently see it in the elbow. Um, and so, so those are the most common areas, um, or I should say the most common joints for OCDs in particular. And, and you know, oh, I'm sorry. I'm no, sorry. Go ahead. But I was just thinking about this because I, you know, I don't really know if this is high yield for questions, but it's definitely high yield clinically. Um, as far as like OCD lesions, and I was thinking about the ankle, uh, you, you also see it or I've seen it at least, and, you know, patients who, you know, this is just like the common everyday person that had a, um, some kind of ankle sprain or uh, a mild ankle fracture. And, you know, they, they still having this continued pain months down the line. And later on, you find out, you know, you may get an MRI or something like that. And you find out like, Hey, they have a OCD lesion. So I think that's another little key kind of tie into things yeah because it could be a good question right why this this person with uh who had this ankle sprain or ankle injury uh still having pain out the physical therapy and such and such and something to keep in mind for sure yeah no i think that's a great point and um dr nolly just to, just to continue on so i guess we never really defined what an ocd lesion is so can you can we want to define what an ocd lesion is or you know what you know, osteochondritis, um, osteocansis, and then, um, and then can we kind of go into what we look for on the x-rays um, for, you know, these patients that, um, that have these lesions or, you know, what, are you even ordering x-rays or are you just jumping, you know, to MRIs and can you can kind of talk about that? Yeah, sure. So OCD, as you, as you stated, osteochondritis, dissecans is, um, can be, it's an abnormality or an uh, abnormal um, development of particularly the articular cartilage and then typically the subchondral bone that's attached to that articular cartilage within a joint. Um, it can happen for a variety of reasons. It can be a congenital malformation that it just never uh, fuses or never develops appropriately. It can be from a traumatic uh, defect or traumatic injury, as you guys just stated, um, uh, which happens frequently in the ankle, but can happen in the knee or elbow or other joints as well, where we see these defects. Um, it, it can it can be relatively idiopathic, where it develops uh, from some sort of a um, uh, other pathology that's associated in the joint, uh, or an a repetitive injury to the or microtrauma to the joint as well. Um, and so, those are the most common etiologies of it. Um, in regards to the uh, imaging, we definitely get X-rays. Uh, it's certainly X-rays in general. Um, uh, for uh, joint evaluation or it, whether it's be an injury or, or just uh, symptomatic pain is first line. Um, and in this case, it definitely would be the, the first line as well because x-rays would really give you a, a really good view of um, the, the anatomy and the outline, particularly potentially of the OCD defect. In particular, if it's in the knee, if we're talking about the knee, um, the standard kind of views that we get, you know, for, for knee x-rays would be a weight-bearing AP, weight-bearing lateral, 
uh, an infrapatella or what people will term the sunrise or merchant views, um, and then a weight-bearing um, PA 30-degree flex. So people call that often the Rosenberg view. Yes, but sir. But basically, uh, but yeah, but basically, you know, the patient bears weight, their flexes their knee 30 degrees, and then it's a PA view, and that view is actually the best in the knee for the most common OCD lesions, because most of the time the, the OCD lesions that you're going to find in the knee are going to be um, on one of the condyles, like I said, and the most common location for an OCD lesion is typically kind of the lateral aspect of the medial femoral condyle. So if you're looking at, again at that uh, weight-bearing flexed view, that's where you're really going to see that OCD lesion on the on the uh, lateral portion of the medial femoral condyle, because oftentimes it's a little bit posterior too. And so that flexed view is really important, especially if you're thinking in your mind that this patient might have an OCD lesion and you want to get a really good visualization of that OCD lesion uh, just with your initial imaging in clinic with radiography with x-rays. So at what point, um, at what point do you move to, to switch on the MRIs, right? So if we get an x-ray, uh, and we see, you know, for example, in the knee that we have a, a defect in the medial femoral condyle. Do you jump to an MRI or do you undergo some like non-operative treatment first? And if it doesn't get better, then jump to an MRI? Like what, in what case are, we, are you doing that? That's a great question. And so that's where it gets back to your history and physical exam, as you guys um, had a great question earlier. And so a lot of times it depends on uh, the patient age and then, and then correlating with their history and physical exam. So if a patient is younger um, and then you see on their x-rays that they're skeletally immature, so their physes are still open um, and they just have a, a moderate amount of pain, then that patient is often initially treated non-operatively. And so non-operative management consists of kind of the usual anti-inflammatories, maybe some physical therapy, and in this case, typically some sort of activity modification where you um, definitely take them out of sports if they're doing that, and then oftentimes restrict their weight bearing to some degree with uh, partial weight bearing or even toe touch weight bearing for a period of time on crutches. Um, in the olden days, we used to actually, in the younger kids, we used to actually even put them in full leg casts because nobody trusted young kids to to not walk on their legs unless you yeah. put them in a cast, and that was kind of <laughs> yeah, right, right. And so we don't we don't often do that as much anymore. Put them in full leg casts for OCD because. Um, most of, a lot of the literature shows even if you just try and keep them off it or keep them out of sports as, mu as much as you can and their physes are open, they'll still probably heal in the majority of cases. We don't do that quite as often as we used to, but, but anyway, so that's, but that's kind of the initial treatment in, in, in that particular patient. Um, and the patient that you um, gave the case example at the beginning, an 18-year-old male football player, highly likely that his, his growth plates, his physes are going to be closed. Um, and he's had four months of pain and swelling and so that patient is, you know, you're probably going to see if it's an OCD, which is what we're talking about. You see that on x-ray, it's a high likelihood you're going to, you're going to then go to an MRI in that patient because uh, his physes are closed. And even if you do non-operative management for a period of time, um, you kind of want to, you want to characterize that lesion pretty well, especially if he's, you know, like, a, like you like an example given if he's in like his senior year or you know or if he wants to continue playing football you want to have a pretty good characterization of what that lesion uh, looks like on MRI so that you can counsel that patient accordingly if if non-surgical management may be an option for him or if he may end up needing something further down the line right and um and I know we're talking about the knee but what are some uh and we, and we and I think you touched on the fact that the most some of the most common areas for uh, these these lesions are going to be on the medial femoral condyle on the lateral aspect of it. But just to quickly touch on elbow and ankle, what are the most common areas for an, uh, for a lesion in those areas of the body? Sure. So elbow is most commonly in the capitellum. 
Um, and so um, a lot of times kind of like that lateral kind of aspect of the capitellum. And again, most commonly we'll see that present in gymnasts. Um, doesn't have to be a gymnast certainly, but most commonly in gymnasts just because they're weight bearing on their elbows. Um, and then in the ankle is most frequently the medial talus. And it's kind of the central to sometimes central to posterior aspect of the medial talus. And you guys made a great point that oftentimes we see that just in traumatic patients as well as in, you know, kind of the congenital or uh, type of setting. And so um, those are the most common locations in those two uh, most common other joints. The knee tends to be where we see the biggest lesions, not only because the articular cartilage and the articular surface is the largest, so there's a larger um, area for it to encompass, um, but it also tends to be where you see kind of some of the bigger defects and bigger lesions as well. And so the knee, depending again on the type, exact patient history and physical examination um, and, and radiographic findings, the knee sometimes tends to be um, less amenable to non-surgical management, at least especially uh, as compared to the elbow, because again, unless they're a gymnast, the elbow is a non-weight-bearing joint. And so that's often very amenable to, uh, or more so amenable to non-surgical conservative management, which we discussed earlier. Uh, the ankle kind of just, again, depends on kind of their activity level and the lesion characteristics itself. Okay. And so we're going back to, you know, some of the imaging as far as when we're looking at the MRI, and I guess we can go back towards the, the for the, the knee uh, case that we had earlier. What are some of the things that we're looking for on the MRI and what kind of helps you determine about stability of the lesion? Yeah, great question. So that's the huge thing, as you stated. So is it a stable versus an unstable lesion? And so the stable lesion is one where there's not going to be a significant amount of subchondral edema or in some cases even fluid uh, beneath the articular surface or beneath the subchondral uh, portion of, of the fragment, of the OCD fragment. Um, if you start to see pretty well circumscribed area below the defect or even in the, the buzzword that they often say on the boards or say on um, the, o, the OIT and stuff is fragmentation, if it's a fragmented um, defect or fragmented lesion, um, which sometimes you can see on x-ray, but sometimes not. More frequently, you can see it better on, on MRI um, is fragmentation of the, the lesion. Uh, then you start to worry that, um, that it could be more unstable. Um, and then certainly in some cases, you can actually see um, a lesion become an actual flap or, or become uh, loose or free-floating, uh, which is straightforward then, of course. Right. So, again, just to summarize that. So, you said for our unstable lesions, those are the lesions like on MRI, you may see fluid that goes underneath that lesion. If it may be fragmented, if you see a flap. Um, and I know you mentioned a little bit earlier about the, the fact that our, our patient whose physis may be closed because he's 18, what does that have to do uh, regarding like what what role does that play regarding stable versus non-stable lesions if the physis is open or closed? Yeah, just more commonly, if the physis is open, it's it's going to be more of a stable lesion. More frequently, um, it's not going to have detached or it's not going to be fragmented as much if they're still going through periods of growth with an open physis. And and then more commonly, it'll it'll be classified or it'll it'll appear uh, on your imaging as an unstable lesion if they have closed physis. Right. Okay. And I think you spoke about it a little bit earlier, but so for our stable lesions at first, you were saying that we're going to treat those non-operatively, and that's where you were saying we'd be doing things like, you know, activity modification, taking them out of any any sports for a little period of time, um, NSAIDs, you know, and then eventually going on a on a physical therapy. Um, do you? I think we we spoke about it. Do you do you repeat like for example, if the patients are getting better with your treatment, do you repeat MRIs to 
to keep an eye on the lesion over time or do you just go clinically like if they're feeling better you don't repeat anything else after they've done their um their their period of non-operative treatment so initially we typically first and foremost we, we would repeat x-rays particularly if it's a defect that's easily visualized on x-ray um and so so that's that's obviously easy to do less time less less cost those sorts of things and so we would repeat x-rays about every four to six weeks or so um and so and, until the lesion is either healed or mostly healed and the patient is completely asymptomatic both on history and physical exam uh, Generally speaking, in terms of a repeat MRI, we would typically do that if the patient remains symptomatic or if the x-ray looks good and you start to let them become more active again, but they become symptomatic again, then you would repeat the MRI, um, typically anywhere from three to six months um, after the initial MRI or after the initial diagnosis. Okay. Well, and I guess that kind of leads to it, but what, what are all of the kind of operative treatment indications that you that you look for to, that's going to definitely tell you, okay, this patient definitely needs uh, surgery? Yeah, so that's a great question. And so again, it, it's a case-by-case it's a case basis. And so, you know, we, we lined out kind of some of the main factors in terms of it being an unstable lesion um, with closed biceps and typically, uh, so that typically means a little bit older patient, generally speaking. Um, and so, uh, d depending on the lesion characteristics and the lesion size um, and the patient activity level expectations um, and in age and, and that sort of thing uh, will dictate the, the um, degree of, or I should say the um, amount of surgery that the patient's going to require or the amount of restoration that the, the patient's going to require. Certainly, first and foremost, the, the easiest thing is, is a simple, and when we start going down the surgical road for those type of uh, unstable lesions, or, or for stable lesions that have failed significant non-surgical management. So either one of those could be the case. Um, the first and, first and simplest thing is a simple kind of arthroscopic uh, debridement or um, removal of any sort of flaps or any sort of unstable portions of the, of the defect or lesion that could be causing mechanical pain or could be causing um, um, a flap kind of injury or flap tear or, or loose, loose articular cartilage. Uh, that's the most simple and kind of straightforward thing. Um, uh, I would say that uh, generally speaking, um, uh, that's not the most common thing that gets done. I mean, it's the simplest thing and the easiest thing, and sometimes it's what gets done. But generally speaking, in these types of things, if we're moving towards surgery or moving towards um, doing a sur doing surgical management because it's an unstable lesion and because there's or it's a symptomatic, severely symptomatic, even stable lesion, we're going to be doing something to try and address the lesion, whether that um, is some sort of uh, drilling um, or whether that ends up being um, fragment fixation or whether that ends up being actually a full-on cartilage restoration procedure of some of some sort and so most commonly we're, we're gonna if we're if we're if we're operating it's gonna end up being something uh, slightly more involved or more aggressive I guess you could say than a simple debridement in most cases yeah I, I think that that was great um, and you mentioned drilling I think we can go ahead and, and kind of just move into some of these you know marrow stimulation techniques and so can you touch on like, you know, arthroscopic microfracture slash drilling, like what patients are the, are, are what patients is this uh, indicated for? And then like, what is kind of like, what is the procedure? You know, what kind of healing does it uh, involve and how do you, how do you know that you're doing this right? Sure. So uh, there's all different types of things that that encompasses. And so the quote-unquote drilling that people typically talk about, there's two different types of drilling. 
So there's anagrade, which typically is also referred to as transarticular, where you actually drill through the, you actually you know, make an arthroscopic portal or even a mini open portal and you drill through the defect or through the articular cartilage into the base of the defect. And then there's, there's retrograde drilling or retroarticular where you actually come in from the side of the condyle, if we're talking about a condyle, and typically under uh, intraoperative x-ray fluoroscopy with a C-arm or something like that, you actually drill underneath uh, from the side of the condyle underneath the defect to basically just beneath the subchondral plate or subchondral bone. Both of them are obviously the intention is to perform, as you stated, marrow stimulation. So to stimulate um, bone marrow to stimulate um, uh, growth factors and, and, and bone marrow aspirate uh, from, from within the bone marrow itself uh, to, the, to the base of the defect to stimulate some degree of healing capacity um, and growth capacity um, to the area that uh, was otherwise not developed well or to, that created the defect. And so those are the two most common kind of um, ways that people have described drilling of an OCD defect. Um, again, either anti-grade or retrograde um, type of drilling. And is, is there a size, like, is there a certain size lesion that you would do this for? Like, is there, like, you'd say you do this up to like a centimeter lesion or are these, is this your first, you know, or your first option or your first thing that you would go to for most lesions? Like, how do you, how do you decide like, okay, let's, let's try, uh, let's try microfracture or let's try drilling with this patient versus something else? Great question. And so um, there's two main factors that are involved in it. Number one is age. Um, well, three main factors. One is age. Two is their skeletal maturity or their abouts. And then three is the size of the defect. So, and then obviously age and skeletal maturity kind of go together. So, so if it's a younger patient um, with a relatively smaller defect, and their physes are closed or are almost closed, or even if it's a stable defect, but they've failed significant um, non-operative care, and so it's now a symptomatic stable defect, as we stated, those patients are the ones that are typically gonna be indicated for some sort of drilling, whether it's a transarticular or a retrograde technique, uh, because they're gonna be much more likely to be able to heal that defect potentially. If it's an older patient who then is definitely uh, skeletally mature, you know, so a lot of times we'll get some of these present with patients in their 20s and 30s and that sort of thing even, um, and it's a bigger defect, um, typically anywhere from a around two centimeters or so, two, two centimeters squared in terms of the defect. So if it's older and larger, those patients don't do as well with any type of drilling, no matter what type of technique you, you utilize, um, just because the articular cartilage or the overlying articular cartilage is really typically pretty poor. And so it's no different than if you saw a patient with a traumatic um, defect of their condyle or their patella, and then, or, or even to some degree a degenerative one, and you just performed a regular microfracture on that patient, the literature is pretty clear that that, that also doesn't do well on that type of patient either. And it's a pretty similar type of patient population at that point. And so a microfracture or, or any type of marrow stimulation or drilling type of technique, however you want to term it at that point, is not going to do very well long-term in, in that type of patient. And so, so younger um, and smaller defects are what's going to be typically indicated for some sort of, sort of drilling procedure in isolation um, or in combination potentially. Um, and then older and much larger defects are going to likely get some form of formal cartilage restoration procedure. I think that was great because I always wondered, um, you know, how people decide because, you know, there's always these different options. And I was like, I mean, if this is an option for everything, how do you decide who gets what? Um, so now I'm super glad that you just went through that, you know, our younger patients with our smaller defects. Now, I know there's some other uh, other techniques as, as far as, you know, osteochondral autographs versus allografts. Can you, can you kind of touch on both of those and 
and you know what it is you know patients that are you know these are going to be indicated for and um you know just kind of kind of educate us on that sure so osteochondral autograft is is obviously taken from the patient themselves um, from a different location um, it, since we're talking primarily about the knee if you're taking it from the knee you typically would take uh, a plug or some amount of autograft bone and cartilage uh, oftentimes from either the intercondylar notch if it's a smaller plug so in the, in the intercondylar notch you can take it just above or anterior uh, to the ACL uh, again along as long as your defect doesn't encompass that or isn't close to that type of um, that location, or you can take it um, superior and proximal and lateral to the lateral trochlea um, is the typical locations where you harvest um, uh, an autograft uh, osteochondral uh, graft. And so um, that's typically indicated for smaller defects. Um, certainly you can't rob Peter to pay Paul. And so frequently we don't take a, an, uh, what people have termed an OATS, audio, uh, osteochondral autograft transfer uh, system, which is oats. Uh, people don't take an oats for much larger than about a 10 millimeter um, or a one centimeter defect. Uh, you can take multiple plugs to try and create, a, cover a larger defect if you needed to. Um, uh, but obviously, like I said, you can't really rob Peter to pay Paul after you get, after you take a certain amount of autographed cartilage. And so, um, so the, the osteochondral autograft is certainly one option, but only it's a pretty limited option for smaller defects in the knee and the elbow, um, osteochondral autographs are a terrific option because again, the, the area, the joint surface area mm -hmm. is smaller. Yep, exactly. And so if you have a, a even if it's a big capitellum lesion in the elbow, uh, that's you know it's big big for the elbow a centimeter for the elbow is huge and so um, so oftentimes you can take a, an autograph from the knee actually in those same locations we just mentioned and then plug it into the elbow um, and so so frequently for the elbow if we need to do cartilage restoration or some sort of graft it is very often that it's an osteochondral autograft and we take it from the knee and we plug it into the elbow um, the talus, as we mentioned, the ankle earlier, the, the curvature radius of curvature of the talus is pretty hard to match. Um, and so you, you can take one from the knee and put it in there. It's been done, but it tends to not really match up very well just because no matter where you take it in the knee, the radius of curvature of the articular surface is going to be different than the talus. Um, and plus, it's a little hard to get into, especially if it's a, a central and posterior defect. You a lot of times have to do like a malleolar osteotomy or something to even get into it, to get it in and put it in in place. And so that's a much more technically demanding type of procedure for the ankle doing doing an autograph transfer uh, of that sort in the ankle. Right. And um, what about the, I guess, the, the donor side morbidity? Like, so in patients that are, you know, like have like large BMIs, do they, do they tend to do, I assume they would tend to do a little bit worse uh, if you're, if you're getting an autograft or harvesting one from their, from their knee. Um, do, how, I guess, what have you seen as far as the donor side morbidity? Do you, do you see that patients don't notice it or you feel like down the line they do? What are you, what are your thoughts? Yeah. In general, it's like most things in orthopedics and medicine in general, patients with larger BMI and then patients who are older uh, tend to not do as well. Uh, just again, that's very generally speaking, of course, um, but that, that that holds true here in this case too. Um, I, I would say um, for the autograph transfer, like I said, there's a rel these are relatively small plugs that we take. And so we can be fairly aggressive with those types of plugs and patients generally do pretty well, um, um, but certainly uh, and, and have little 
pretty minimal harvest site morbidity, again, generally speaking, but, uh, but uh, as, as a general rule, patients with a larger BMI and patients who are older, particularly older than 40 or 50 or so, uh, do not do quite as well. So, and, you know, it's looked like we've been, you know, talking about some of the options for smaller defects. What are some of the things, well, yeah, what are some of the, the, the options for larger defects and, uh, you know, what, what options are you looking at for those types? Yeah, so my favorite procedure, probably maybe of any procedure, as I mentioned at the outset, um, but certainly one of my favorite procedures for larger defects in older patients in this type of setting with this type of pathology is the osteochondral allograft transplant. And so um, that's where we take um, live cartilage and subchondral attached to its appropriate subchondral bone uh, from a from a donor, um, and then uh, that gets harvested, and then and then we size it appropriately to the size of the defect of the the patient, um, and then and then we cut it to the exact dimensions, and then we implant it in, into place, and it can be implanted with a number of techniques, but typically implanted with a press fit type of technique where it's implanted perfectly line to line essentially, and so um, that's a really great technique and a really um, nice surgery and there's a lot of really good literature that's come out now 10 to 15 year follow-up that shows that it's a excellent um, an excellent option for OCDs in particular um, because OCDs uh, we know a lot more about the natural history of them now than we did even 20 years ago um, even though we still don't know everything but um, but oftentimes in addition to the articular cartilage not being good and not being healthy the subchondral bone is also usually not very healthy and is and is not normal and so the benefit of a osteochondral allograft is you're transplanting um, you know living healthy articular cartilage and subchondral bone and you can regulate the depth of how deep you want that subchondral bone to go and so if you get your preoperative MRI that we discussed earlier and you see bone marrow edema or a defect that goes five, six, seven, eight, even nine, 10 millimeters deep into the subchondral bone, you can ream out all of that unhealthy subchondral bone and then replace it, um, you know, with a large osteochondral plug if you needed to. Now the, the, I guess, how, how about the storing of, of these, of these allografts? You know, do you, at, at your facility, are there any special procedures or, you know, is there a shelf life to how long these allografts can, can last for? And then what are, what are some of the downsides for using uh, osteochondral allograft? Yeah, that's good. That's a two-part question. So first part is the storage. Um, so historically, uh, these had to be stored in a certain type of storage medium that's a, that keeps the chondrocytes alive, obviously, and, and keeps the chondrocytes living. And, and there's been different types of storage mediums that have been developed over the last 20 years. Historically, the, the mediums that, that were utilized, the, the graft would start to lose chondrocyte viability after about 28 days or so. So the minimum, obviously, chondrocyte viability that you need to implant one of these transplants is you need to have at least 70% chondrocyte viability. There's been numerous studies that have done in the literature that show if you have less than 70% chondrocytes, it's going to not do very well. It's going to fail long term. Um, and so you have to have at least 70% chondrocyte viability, but ideally you would have 100% chondrocyte viability or at least greater than 90%. You want to, obviously you want normal cartilage, you want normal chondrocytes. And so, um, and so historically that's been about 28 days. The graphs have to go through rigorous testing um, to make sure that obviously uh, there's, no, there's no types of um, bacteria or viruses, but then also that the graph is structurally appropriate and that, that testing typically takes about 14 days. And so historically we would get notification that we had a matching graft available for transplant and you would have anywhere from 
you know, maybe seven to 10 days, oftentimes, or if you're lucky, 14 days to implant it into the patient. Um, and so that, that is one factor depending on the tissue um, bank and the tissue um, storage medium that's being utilized. There is a new preservation system that's been developed actually where I train um, is where the preservation system has been developed. It's called the MOPS Preservation System, Missouri Osteochondral Preservation System, MOPS for short. Uh, that is actually a pretty, a pretty cool thing. That's really changed tissue transplantation for these types of grafts. It, it now allows grafts to be stored for up to 56 days with 90% plus chondrocyte viability. Oh, wow. And so, um, and so that, that's really changed. Uh, yeah, that's changed the landscape for osteochondral allografts. And so now we have many more grafts available. Um, and then we have them available for longer. So we don't have to now call the patient and say, hey, you got to get here. We have to do your big transplant surgery in the next five <laughs> days. We can say, well, we can do it in the next 25 days. And that makes it a little bit easier on patients and on surgeon scheduling too, obviously. So, so that has helped. And so that's a long answer to part one. Part two of your question was still limitations. So limitations, there's, there's still, they still exist even with the newer MOPS preservation system. So it still costs a fair amount of money. So cost is certainly one limitation versus some other things. Um, depending on the preservation system or the transplant um, company or the size of the patient, if you get a patient that's six, eight and 300 pounds, it may be hard to find a matching donor graft for him. And, and the same right. thing on the other side, you know, if you have a gymnast that's 410, uh, you may you, you may not be able to find a graph that matches. So availability, so mm. uh, so availability is a big one. And then and then the, anytime you're using an allograft, even if it's you know done perfectly and done well, there's always there's always a risk for potentially lower healing rate or slower healing rate or, or slower incorporation um, of the allograft itself. Right. And it's it's a I guess a curious question. If you had a if you had like a professional you know NFL player, does the do you does would you go towards like an allograft versus an autograft as far as like donor site morbidity? Like, are you, are you more worried about, like, is there any different type of algorithm for, I guess, professional sports uh, uh, um, athletes compared to, you know, your normal person that doesn't do a lot of physical activity? You know, they're, they're more, um, you know, they, they don't do as much, you know, rigorous, rigorous work. That's a great question. Um, you know, professional sports is a, is a whole different ballgame than than the average person, as everybody knows. And so, they're they're gonna they're gonna be their algorithm is gonna be much more extensive from the get go. And so, obviously, there we, you know, there's because there's all different types of injection therapies that will be involved potentially with them, including bone marrow aspirate or platelet rich plasma or things like that. Um, their, their initial surgical management is, is probably actually going to lean more on the lines of debridement um, and chondroplasty and things like that. Because in professional athletes, it's all about trying to be uh, as minimal as possible when it comes to surgical intervention as you can, but as rapid as possible with any other type of intervention that gets them back onto the court or back onto the field as quickly as possible, right. uh, if, that, if that makes sense. And so and so their algorithm is going to be much longer and much more detailed before you get all the way to this level that we're, that we're now talking about in terms of osteochondral autographs and osteochondral allografts. Um, and so that being said, um, uh, Brian Cole, who's the team head team position for the Chicago Bulls, uh, is at Rush in Chicago. They published a couple of good papers on uh, athletes return to play after osteochondral allografts. Um, and they included not only a few professional athletes that he's done it in, but then also high-level college athletes and things like that. And, and the return to play after an osteochondral allograft is kind of similar to some other, you know, um, cartilage restoration procedures. It's typically anywhere kind of from like, anywhere from 70 to 80 percent, generally speaking, which is pretty good. Um, um, but
but not perfect. And so again, uh, in a professional athlete, um, they're always looking for perfect. And so their algorithm is going to be much longer uh, before you get finally to, um, you know, this kind of end stage or end level treatment option, if you want to call it that. Okay. And uh, what is some of your experience with the autologous chondrocyte implantation for these types of uh, pathology? Yeah, so uh, for cartilage restoration in general, um, it's a great procedure um, and, and that, um, you know, we could certainly divulge into that um, heavily too on, off, on to another tangent, but um, just a, a sticking with kind of the OCD theme for the time being, um, it's not as commonly done um, for OCDs anymore uh, for a couple of reasons that I alluded to and I mentioned earlier. One being that there's a pretty significant subchondral bony involvement oftentimes, particularly with larger OCD lesions. And so if it's a smaller OCD lesion, um, you know, either simple debridement and chondroplasty or the autologous um, transfer that we mentioned tends to be, a, you know, very, you know, adequate procedures for smaller OCDs. And if it's a larger OCD lesion, um, then oftentimes there has significant bony involvement in play too. Um, and so then that's when people will frequently go to the osteochondral allograft transplant. Now you can do an ACI um, and with bone loss and you can do bone grafting and you can, there's different techniques. There's a technique that's called a sandwich technique where you actually double up the graft uh, to build it up or to bulk up the base of the defect. Um, but it's not as frequently done, particularly as it, at least as it pertains to OCD. Uh, but just generally speaking, ACI is a you know it's a, it's a two-stage procedure where you do initial diagnostic scope and and then you biopsy uh, the articular cartilage, the patient's own articular cartilage. It gets sent off to the lab, and then uh, those uh, chondrocytes are cultured and expanded. Um, uh, any you know typically four, five, six weeks, and then um, and then those those chondrocytes that are expanded are embedded onto some sort of matrix or some sort of graft. Oftentimes, the most the most common one that's done here in the United States is a matrix associated autologous chondrocyte implantation, which is a porcine graft that the chondrocytes are embedded onto and into. And so then you come back for a second stage procedure and then you cut that graft to fit the size of the defect and then you implant it in um, to the defect uh, or the defect base. Right, so just to summarize that, so this, uh, you know, on autologous chondrocyte implantation, two, two stage procedure, first stage you biopsy the chondrocyte, send it in a lab, and then they culture those chondrocytes, and then you implant it, but you put it on a on a on a on like this collagen matrix. Um, that that'd be the Macy part of it. Um, then you put it on this collagen matrix, and you put it in the defect. And then on top of that, you like put some fiber and glue, or you, you suture it, or you, you just have some way to make it stay uh, in place. Is that that's kind of correct? Yeah, that's right on. Nice work. Okay. Yeah, the historical way we used to do it was with a six O suture. Um, okay. to suture, suture, suture the patch in. We don't usually have to do that as much anymore now. You, the fiber and glue that we have now is pretty good. In some cases, if it's a little unstable, we may put like a tiny little suture tack on the corners of the graft and then suture it down with the, with the, with the, with the anchor, with the soft little suture anchor um, or something like that. But, um, but most of the time, yeah, the fiber and glue is typically what's utilized. And what's the difference between this, where we have the two-stage procedure versus, I believe there's like another, just a one-stage procedure. Um, I, I may be a little confused on it, but where you just have um, this uh, collagen matrix is placed down instead of with the live chondrocytes. You, you understand? You know what I'm talking about? I thought. Sure. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of 
different things that, that come out. It depends on what you're talking about, but, but yeah, but so, um, so you can, you can do like matrix associated um, stem cell, which are people call it that, um, which is where you have a collagen matrix um, and you take bone marrow aspirate concentrate and you, you um, basically um, inject the bone marrow aspirate concentrate back into the defect. And then you, you coat the matrix with the bone marrow aspirate concentrate with the idea being that you'll have a, a large amount of progenitor cells and, and, and growth factors and marrow stimulants um, within that matrix then and then, and then beneath that matrix to stimulate the base of the, the defect. Um, there's, there's another procedure that's relatively newer too um, where you can um, uh, actually shave off some of the patient's own articular cartilage. So from those same areas where we talked about taking an actual graft or a whole plug um, for the oats earlier, you can actually just kind of shave the articular cartilage in that area, but then it gets held, it gets um, grabbed with a tube before the shaver goes, um, before when you, when you suction it up. And so you, you take all those fragments of articular cartilage and then you can mix those also again with like a bone marrow aspirate concentrate into a paste or put them even on a matrix and then you implant that back into the defect and so that's a that's a single stage autologous um, either matrix associated or matrix induced um, those are two separate ones but uh, two separate ways that you can utilize uh, the patient's kind of own cells and then own bone marrow aspirate um, to do that in a single stage procedure Ah, okay. Makes perfect sense. Thanks for clearing that up. And then um, the last thing I wanted to touch base on, because I know we, we had a patient, well, I was on foot and ankle, we had a patient actually had this procedure done, and I never heard of it before. This patient is, uh, can you kind of talk about the de, the, the de novo procedures of those particulated cartilage products and, and like what that is and I guess the role that it, that it plays? Yeah, sure. So, so de novo is particulated juvenile articular chondrocytes. So, so PJAC, particulated juvenile articular chondrocytes, um, and it's so it's it's cartilaginous tissue that's that's uh, um, been minced up um, in and from a patient. Again, it's a donor, but a patient that's younger than 13 years old. So theoretically, um, it still has the capability um, to differentiate or the capability. Uh, to grow, um, uh, given that given where that stage is in the development process when it's harvested, um, and so it's particulated, um, and then um, you can put that in, and you you put that in again, kind of in a, in, and then you kind of you put all the particulated juvenile cells in all at once, and then you can kind of glue that in uh, as well in a similar type of way, and so um, that has that's had some decent data. Um, uh, the difficulty with de novo uh, is it is really hard to get through insurance um, in this country, in the United States, that is. Um, and so it, it, uh, it, it became popular about five or six years ago, and then um, it has gotten exponentially more difficult uh, to get insurance to approve it. Occasionally, some insurance uh, companies will approve it, or some patients will come in and ask for it if they have the means and the capability to pay for it. Uh, it is more frequently approved still in the ankle um, for whatever reason, I think maybe just because there's a little bit more data actually for it in the ankle. Um, but I, I personally, I'm a fairly busy uh, cartilage restoration surgeon, and I haven't done de novo in the knee um, in about three or four years. Um, and, I, and I don't even try anymore, quite frankly, just because it's very difficult to get it pushed through insurance. But it's good that you got to see it um, for that ankle case because they don't happen very often anymore. But that's what it is. Right. Okay. And 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 how do we, you know, how do you decide? So I guess that's the one thing I still um, sometimes have trouble with. Like, how do you decide which patients are you going to do a Macy versus 
De Novo versus Autologous Matrix Induced Chondrogenesis. Like, I know these are all options, but how do you decide like which one you're going to use? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, De Novo, they they took that one out of, they made that one easy for us because they've taken, like I said, they've taken it out of our hands. Most insurances uh, do, so they won't even get approved. So that kind of takes that one off the table and in, mo in many cases anyway. When it comes to Macy um, versus an autologous procedure versus an osteochondral allograft transplant, um, again, it's it's patient specific and, and all the factors that we always talk about in, in these types of things. So uh, patient age, skeletal maturity, um, size of the defect, uh, depth of the defect is a really big one, as as we talked about earlier. Um, and then and then uh, to some degree, kind of. Uh, uh, patient activity level and patient expectations and that sort of thing. And then the only thing that we haven't discussed as much, uh, except a little bit, um, is the location of the defect. And so um, um, Macy has the autologous chondrocyte implantation has really good results um, uh, in the patellofemoral joint, uh, somewhat better than um, historically like an osteochondral allograft or even an oats, just because the trochlea uh, morphology can be somewhat different, difficult to match uh, with an allograft or a, even a, an oats uh, kind of graft. That has changed recently. We have some different types of cutting guides and some different types of techniques that now allow us to match allografts pretty much line to line perfectly in the trochlea. Uh, same thing with the patella. Uh, the patella sometimes historically um, had issues with fixation and the patella being very mobile uh, could create issues. Um, so historically, uh, people have done uh, some sort of an autologous procedure um, in the patellofemoral joint. Um, I would say people probably do autologous versus uh, allograft type of procedures in the patellofemoral joint about equally now um, in terms of um, cartilage restoration. But it, 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 for me, the big ones are um, patient Asian expectations, but then especially the size, uh, depth, and location of the defect. Well, there it is. I think that's a, a perfect uh, just kind of overview on all the different uh, topics and and uh, I guess the just kind of the workup that you need to do for these types of uh, types of injuries. I, I learned a whole lot with this and uh, I think we went over a lot of high yield topics that uh, are asked about on different uh, questions. So thank you very much, Dr. Uh, Dr. Nelly. Yeah, this uh, is great. Absolutely. Absolutely. Is yeah, there, it's awesome. Thank you, guys. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. Is there is there anything uh, I guess before we close out that, that you would say you know that you'd want listeners to guys take away from this talk uh, regarding Carlos restoration? Like, are there any any big high points or that you can think yeah, of? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, the one big one I think I would say that uh, you know you, you will hear. Uh, probably most of your sports call your sports attendings if it's a resident or a fellow or anybody listening at that level or, or even beyond or if you attend many of the meetings you will hear people talk about microfracture a lot and and microfracture has historically kind of been the go-to number one surgery for any sort of a cartilage defect or even you know, whether it be an OCD or whether it be a traumatic defect or just something that you see um, you know, you happen to see incidentally for scoping a meniscus tear, equals, it's very common that there will be an articular cartilage defect somewhere, even when somebody scopes for a meniscus or an ACL. And historically, people would, would, would stick a chondral pick in there and microfracture that and say it'll probably be fine and it'll be no big deal. Um, but the literature is, is very clear that in many cases, particularly for larger defects and especially for larger defects in, in younger patients, patients than, you know, who are active, so are active patients less than 40, that is not going to be the case and microfracture is going to break down and it's going to break down usually within two to three years. And so 
I would just caution anyone, you may still see some attendings and you may even hear some attendings in some places say that they still microfracture a lot of defects and, and then patients do fine and it's no big deal. Um, but you will not hear any uh, high volume cartilage restoration um, attending tell you to microfracture um, very many defects. And so that's a big one that you'll hear us talk about a lot on the podium is uh, we have much better options in 2020 for, for cartilage issues than, than just a standard good old fashioned microfracture. So I would caution anyone on that. Fair enough. There it is. Good to know. And But before we, we close it out, Dr. Nully, we usually ask our our guest, is there a way for our uh, listeners to reach out with to you, whether it's a uh, social media tag or email address or anything like that? Absolutely. So, um, so social media, Twitter and Instagram is at Nully Sports MD. So N U E L L E Sports MD. Um, I'm pretty pretty active on both uh, Twitter and Instagram. I, let, I post a fair amount of cartilage restoration stuff on there, actually, for for those that are really interested in that. Email is uh, C Nully, uh, so C N U E L L E at T as in Tom S A O G dot com. Uh, happy to answer any questions um, anytime. Shoot me emails anytime. And then I would like to. I'd be remiss if I didn't put in just one quick little plug uh, for the podcast that we do too. We do. Uh, it's called the Arthroscopy Podcast, and it's affiliated with the Arthroscopy Journal. And so uh, certainly it's goes right in line with you guys. You guys have a great podcast. And so for anybody that enjoys podcasts, check out, uh, check out the arthroscopy podcast and add it to your podcast library. And uh, it's just more fun, more fun ortho podcast stuff. So. Love it. Uh, I love it, man. Thank, I appreciate you, Dr. Nolly for coming on. Um, and until next time.